Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is Amy Boucher, creator of the nearly knowledgeable history blog. In the blog, Amy explores the folklore and history of the people, places and landscapes of her native Shropshire in England, which is replete with tales of giants, ghosts, devils and witches, as well as an equally interesting cast of local heroes and villains. In the interview, I talk with Amy about her love for these subjects, some of her favourite legends and notable Shropshire characters, and the role that folklore and local history play in preserving the memories of the communities and heritage of those places. Here then is our conversation. Enjoy! Amy, welcome to the podcast. Hiya, you're right. The area that you research and write about is Shropshire. And for people who aren't familiar with that part of Britain, can you just tell them a little bit about it? Um, I completely understand if you're not familiar with it because I mean when I went to university and I used to tell people I was from Shropshire and I might as well have told them I was from Middle Earth Um, it's (laughs) kind of a county a wider county area the Shrewsbury is the biggest um, town in the area a medieval town and then uh, you might have heard of Telford or the Iron Bridge which is the first bridge made out of iron um it's between Birmingham and Wales that's kind of I'm not very good at geography but that's probably the easiest way to describe it and it's got a great level of kind of history and folklore and and that kind of thing um it's also known as the Welsh marches in the medieval period because of the amount of warfare that was going on between the uh, English and the Welsh the description I was thinking of as well is is sort of between Birmingham and Wales it's the it's the yeah. last bit of last bit of civilization before you hit Wales. No offense to Wales, but <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. It's it's it is it is hard to kind of describe because in in many ways it's it's a product of Wales and it's a product of England, and in many ways it's a separate entity. There's there's so many influences from both countries, but also kind of you get weird little bits of folklore and little anomalies in history poking up. Um, that you can't really blame either country. <laughs> so how did your interest in this kind of stuff start? Um, I've always been a weird kid. I've always been into uh, things that are a bit spooky and a bit different and kind of fantasy, that kind of thing. But I grew up knowing about folklore before I really knew I knew about folklore, if uh, you know what I mean. I tell this story quite a lot, but my granddad, when he was a child um was said to have met the devil he was absolutely swore by this he was in his 80s when he passed and he till the day he died he was adamant he met the devil and one Sunday he was playing cards rather than being in church on the church steps and the devil came and and told him off and told him that if he carried on doing such a thing he'd end up with the devil when he passed Uh, so it obviously put the fear of God in him and he he became a good boy after that but I grew up with that story and also um, I grew up near the Reekin and I grew up with the stories of like the Reekin giant and that kind of thing so it it very much played an impact on me before I really knew what folklore was Um, and then I think after that it was really in lockdown I wanted to write a blog to boost my confidence a little bit Um, and I for some reason my brain just always kept going back to Shropshire and it's folklore so I just kind of explored it from there really. That's a fascinating story uh, an encounter that your, your grandfather had. Yeah he um so he never described unfortunately what he actually looked like the devil um and I like to kind of imagine lots of different view, like lots of different looks and stuff but he all he said was it made his blood run cold and it just made him never want to play cards again and even when we were children and um, we're talking 60 plus years after he wouldn't let us play games on a Sunday in case the devil came um so it was quite <laughs> quite boring on a Sunday <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah at least the devil didn't turn up I suppose <laughs> yeah yeah no that'd have been pretty metal though <laughs> yeah yeah definitely so what about things like ghost stories yeah I've always uh liked ghost stories as well I, I like I said I was a bit of a weird kid and um fairies ghosts anything that was a bit different I was interested in I 
used to um, look for fairies when I went for walks in kind of the woods and stuff. My, my granddad, again, he used to say to me, oh, watch out for the fairies, keep an eye on them. So I would literally like look for them wherever. Um, and ghosts, I, I've, I grew up with my mum and dad being quite interested in the paranormal. And that's naturally carried on through my life. And I've got more interested in it as I got older. Um, and And yeah, I think there's quite a crossover between ghost stories and folk tales. So they naturally mesh quite well together. Mm, Absolutely. So when you were starting your blog, what sort of approach did you want to take to looking at folklore? Um, At first, I just wanted to write about history. Um, Folklore wasn't the first thing that necessarily came into my head. I, I had over, I, I've always been interested in folklore, but I had interests um, like in the medieval period and the Vikings. And I did write about those things. And I wrote about um, different folk creatures like the Boobak in, I probably pronounced that terribly, in Welsh folklore, which is a little brownie that lives in your house, which he's, he's great. Um, but I think I found that those things I was writing about were good and I enjoyed them. My, my mind kept returning home and I don't know whether that was because I was living I live in the northwest now I don't live in Shropshire um and it was during the lockdown and we were all quite cooped up and I think it was a bit of an escapism really um because one of the first things I wrote about was the reeking um which I spent many a childhood day walking up and with sore legs afterwards and I think in a lot of way it was my way of by returning home I was able to kind of have that escapism during lockdown um so then after that I kind of wrote about the folk tales I knew so I did the reeking giant I did um about sin eaters which is kind of a south Shropshire it's it's a thing where folklore and real life kind of merge and the sin eater is said to eat like uh, bread and drink wine over a dead body if they've not had their last rites but then they take on the sins they literally eat the sins of that uh, deceased person so I wrote about that but then once I'd run out of kind of folk tales that I knew of I started really exploring it further and absolutely finding some corkers absolutely brilliant ones <laughs> wow yeah um going back to the the sin eater that you're just talking about there just just talk a little bit more about that sort of that concept because that's really interesting yeah um so the sin eater it's a wider um thing that there it's a wider practice where the person would say somebody's passed away but it was before they could have their last rites they would get an individual who usually a sin eater would be from quite a low level of society quite vulnerable unfortunately um maybe with uh issues with poverty or with say alcoholism for instance and they would get them to perform the ritual over the deceased and it involved um eating some ceremonial bread or or cakes and drinking alcohol over the the body and saying words like um like a little phrase or something to take on the sins of the deceased so the deceased could be buried in consecrated ground however the sin eater couldn't because there's no sin eater for the sin eater um and the practice it's it kind of 16th 17th centuries it's at its height and then it kind of dies out it's still there's are mentions of it in Shropshire but then it dies out and then in the early kind of 1900s 1800s 1900s it's resurrected again and my interest really lies with a chap um called Richard Munslow and he's pretty atypical to the Sin Eater because he's not someone in poverty. He's not somebody that really needs to be doing something like this. Um, he's a fellow that is a yeoman. He's got lots of land. He's a farmer of some substance, but he resurrects the practice and he becomes Shropshire's last Sin Eater. Now, it's in a little area called Rattling Hope. Um, it's called Ratchup for the locals. And he, he had a farm there. And he became a sin eater for all over Shropshire. And they believe that he did that because he lost four children in total. But he lost one when it was 11 weeks old and then three in the space of about a week, uh, all to illnesses. And they they believe, um, and I, I tend to agree with them, that one of the reasons why he was brought back into the sin eating practice was through grief. Um, he wanted to be able to probably heal himself but also 
help other people with that process of grief in in the area and um we actually went I went back down to Shropshire recently visited his grave you can still go and see his grave in in uh, Rattling Hope or Ratchup's churchyard and he's buried with his his wife and his children uh, so it's quite nice to be able to still have that tangible link to the history but also it he becomes almost quasi folkloric really uh, so that's Sinita's yeah I mean the, the, the great thing about that story you've just told is that it, it's about a, a real person but but they have a sort of a, a mythic quality about them because of their story yeah oh definitely I mean not so much Richard because it is said that he was kind of very well loved in the area and he was um almost a, 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 they were almost proud of having a sin eater in their area but if we go back in through history into the past when it was done they were often outcasts they were often like uh, witches are often um perceived to be they had to live outside of the community they had to be ostracized from the communities and they it would have been a really lonely thing and and I think if we again move away from Richard Munslow and think about Sin Eaton in the past the idea of being taking on lots of people's sins but knowing that there's no redemption for you must have been really quite psychologically difficult I think absolutely I think Rattling Hope, isn't it? I think I remember you put a video on Twitter about a, a ghost story. Is that the same Rattling Hope? Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, so there is a, a little road that goes through Rattling Hope um, and it and it up onto the Long Mind and kind of further. It's, it's all one road. It's a little winding road. And there has been numerous sightings on that area of a ghostly funeral procession. And it's very grand, very ostentatious. Uh, the horses are all black. Um, it's meant to be one of those big old fashioned Victorian kind of hearses being pulled by two black horses. And some people have just seen the hearse, but then other people have seen the procession leading behind. Um, so you've got the the hearse, you've got the coffin, the, the horses, and then you've got groups of people in Victorian morning dress walking slowly behind up the road. Um, I personally didn't see it when I was there last, but I think it's it's really cool and really quite an eerie image to to think about in I think it would be in anywhere, but it's very small little rural community and the idea of that ghost just passing through on its on its way is it's it's very striking image, I think. Mm, so does it happen at a certain time in the day, like in the evening or dusk? Yeah, dusk tends to be when it's seen most, but it has. There have been accounts of it from all over, really. But we, you tend to see most at dusk. Right. Okay. And have you had a chance to to speak to the locals when you've investigated things like this? Um, I didn't at the time when I was down there. I have spoke to people um, via Twitter. To, uh, Twitter's my medium that I tend to share most on, and people have reported not so much that encounter but several kind of ghostly things in the or, or supernatural type type of things in the the wider area so in like the long mind or uh the stiper stones the stiper stone seems to be a real hotbed for kind of people seeing things um so they're always quite cool and it's quite cool to find out other people's experiences with somewhere that has such a folklore attached to it mm, yeah i mean what are the stiper stones um, so the Stiper Stones, it's it's a wider area, it's like a hill, um, but on that there are some rock formations and um, one of them is called the Devil's Chair and it's said to be, I'm absolutely obsessed with folklore about the devil, um, it's, it's been in my ancestry, but um, the Devil's Chair is said to be where the devil sits and watches out over the whole of England. He seems to have quite a proclivity for Shropshire. He really seems to like it, the devil. But he's said to sit there and watch out over all of England. And he will know when the time is ready. And when the time is ready, he will push the stones back into the earth. And that will be the end of time. And that will bring about the apocalypse. Um, but he he uses it kind of as, as a sentry outpost, really, just watching and kind of... Because not far from the devil's chair, there is um, a big kind of clearing I suppose um and it's called hell's gutter and it's meant to be so deep that it goes straight to hell and often there's little stories in in the folk tales like a kind of of walkers going to enjoy the view getting lost and ending up in hell and that winds the devil up a little bit so he he sits on the devil's chair and makes sure that people stay away um 
<laughs> which is quite good. It's it's an area that's featuring in um, my audio drama that I'm writing currently and kind of I'm trying to weave in all the devil folklore I can find. But speaking to people on Twitter, they've had experiences on the devil's chair where they've seen things. Um, one person showed me some pictures, like tagged me in some pictures of, of kind of almost a figure like a like a, a shadowy figure stood on the devil's chair and it looked like it even had horns um and she said that when they took the picture they couldn't see anyone but the picture clearly looked like something so that was really cool um so yes i think it, it's good to know that these stories are continuing and they're not dying out because i think it's very important to me to ha- to tell these stories in a new way but also ensure that they still happen because they're so rich and so so varied that it's good to share them. Absolutely. No, I, I completely agree. I, I mean, I think one thing that is important to to people is stories. Everyone likes stories and stories are a great, are a great way of transmitting information and, and making places memorable. Oh, definitely. Um, I think we all have our stories about an area anyway. We might be able to say, oh, this is where um, we did this or we did this there. Like for, for me now, I got um, actually asked, my partner asked me to marry me on the stone. Uh, that didn't come out right. He asked me to marry him on the stiper stones on the devil's chair. So it has a new meaning. I can remember walking around when I was a child and knowing, oh, the devil lives here, that kind of thing. But then now it's also a special place to me that the devil just happens to hang out. But I think the wider stories are very good to share and, and to know that they're continuing. And that I think one thing I've found fascinating since I've been doing my folklore and, and that kind of thing is how much people still care about these stories and how much within Shropshire people still are willing to go, oh, actually, I, I, I had something here or my granddad used to tell me that twail or, or that kind of thing. And it, it shows that they still resonate with people, I think. Yeah, and it probably goes back to the way that people related things to each other. I mean, we live in the, I mean, the modern age is kind of given us the benefit of things like maps and 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 easy to obtain information. Whereas I suppose in the time when the folklore sort of was first told or created, it was it was very much more of a sort of an oral tradition of kind of maintaining history and and local legends. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I think um, certain things have residual memories in. So one of my favourite ghost stories ever um, is from Ironbridge, the, uh, the Ironbridge Gorge area. And it's actually not a ghost that's attached to a building or a or a ca- old castle or anything like that. It's a ghost that's attached to the River Severn. And it's meant to be this ghost barge that is piled high with corpses it's led at the front and and has been driven by this figure draped in all black um he's meant to be a lot taller than not really any facial features are described but a lot taller than humanly kind of possible and he's driving the boat gently down the river seven and it's meant to be piled high with corpses row on row um it gets past the iron bridge and goes down the valley and disappears now, the boat is seen again in an area called Jackfield, which is just further down the river. Um, and it's seen parked up almost at the side of the river with the figure stood next to the boat, but also the bodies lying on the floor. Um, and what I think is really cool about that story is, apart from the fact it's a ghost barge full of corpses, which is pretty cool, um, is the fact that in the 15th and 16th centuries during the plague, Shropshire lost I think nearly a third of its population it was really quite badly hit but one of the areas for the biggest plague pit in in the Ironbridge area was Jackfield so is that a residual memory or is it something that we've talked about and we've tried to tried to understand the you know any death is hard to understand and hard to conceptualize but on such a mass scale have we created these ghosts because we're trying to conceptualize the loss and they've just carried on or is the literally a ghost and a specter of the still carrying out his job is it because a lot of the bargemen that would carry the corpses would unfortunately succumb to the plague themselves because they were around the bodies all day um so it it has dual meaning it's is it 
literally a, a spectre and an entity that is still carrying out his old job and and doing what he always had to do or is it a way of collectivizing grief and understanding it um so i think that that very much kind of links back to your point i think absolutely no that's um that's a fascinating story that you've just told there i mean i think you're right it it, it does feel a bit like that the area remembering this this tragic thing that happened oh definitely yeah i think I think as well with it being attached to the rivers um, really interests me because in that period of time and all the way up into the kind of the advent of the railway, the River Seven was a portal to the wider world. It was a portal to, you know, at one point, I think there was trade going through the River Seven to the Mediterranean and things. And it was also there in that story, a portal to the afterlife and, I think when you go into kind of that idea and stuff, it it gets really interesting. And I think just even if you boil it down to just being a cool story, it's it's a cool ghost (laughs) from the plague going down the River Severn. So I particularly like that one. Yeah, I can I can see why. But you you're right. I mean, there are plenty of cultures have uh, the idea of a a spirit connected to bodies of water. I mean, do you know if that was the case with the River Severn? I imagine it was. I know that I'm not very clear on the story, but I know the River Seven was a goddess at one point in Romano-British kind of tradition, and and the Welsh had a different name for her, but she was known as Sabrina. Um, I can't recall the story, but that is one I need to double check on. But I know she was a goddess, um, and I know in different bodies of water in Shropshire we've got things like Jenny Green Teeth, which again it's all over um Britain but it's the idea of this horrible water hag that's got eyes like dinner plates and is all green and moldy and gross and dragging little children into the rivers and bodies of water to eat um which is a way of mothers going keep away from the water um but even the river seven there are other ghost stories attached to it there's a ghost story again from Jack Field in um, near Ryan Bridge and it's two little children that were unfortunately playing. Um, I think it was the 1850s the event actually happened and there were two little children and they were playing in the river. They were twins near the river uh, and one fell in. So the other twin attempted to save their twin and they both ended up drowning and the ghosts of these children are said to still haunt the house in which the bodies were taken to but also um the river and and to try and keep people away from almost like a warning to keep people away from the river and to try and keep people safe um so there's a lot of kind of again it's where history and and folklore have collided and and a lot of almost collective memory attached to the area particularly of the Ironbridge gorge area Mm. and it reminds me just talking about that, a few years ago, there were those children who, they were a, fo- a football team, I think, and they went to look at a cave in Thailand and and got trapped. Oh, yeah. And they sent divers in to rescue them and all the kids got out, but a diver died doing that. And ever since that, I thought, well, it, I mean, clearly, yeah, there's, you're, you're right. The idea of, a, of an entity like Jenny Greenteeth is definitely scary and is and works to scare children from not going too close to the water. But but these places do they do take human lives. They they there is a cost, isn't it? I mean, it, it you can sort of put a narrative where something led these children into a cave and then it it still required a human life in order for them to be freed. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I think that's where a lot of these stories come from is the idea of the unknown we don't understand why children die or or for instance these children got stuck in the cave so we try even now try and conceptualize it and the idea of a life for a life is a motif throughout all of kind of folklore and and literature and things so it would be it would be quite easy to take that story and and create some sort of jenny green tea figure that that needed a, a sacrifice you know um and i think we still are looking for those kind of answers today we might not need a jenny green tea for a, a devil um but we still don't understand why bad things happen and why bad things happen to people so young or, or that kind of thing so i think we do end up kind of 
looking for things and, and it's driven people back to things like folklore and um superstitions and it's it's even things like why do we still salute at magpies when we see magpies because Always we do. don't want something bad to happen yeah i do as well um and i think it's very human to behave in such a way and have these views and and have these need for the stories and for the narrative behind the event yeah yeah try and get me to go under a ladder i won't i won't do it <laughs> <laughs> i'm i'm magpies is the worst for me yeah, I guess you you need to you worry about seeing the right a good number, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, how many? Two's all right. Two's always good. Yeah, 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 definitely. And it doesn't take away from the from from understanding why these sorts of stories are told. It doesn't take away from the value of thinking about the nature of a being like like a Jenny Green Teeth or the or that barge man you described. I I always find it interesting to sort of wonder about why they are rather than what they are oh definitely yeah I think trying to get the motives behind things and and try and understand things is really interesting with folklore and also to try and understand what it meant to the society that it create created it um so I might I might kind of interpret something very differently to another person from the period or from or even my granddad um who was aware of the same folk tales and I think that's the beauty of folklore is that the stories continue but they just gain new meaning and new a new teller of the tale kind of thing um so yeah I definitely think it's interesting to sit back and especially with uh some of the like the back to Richard Munslow I always try and think when I'm talking about him or when I was writing about him what led him to do those things did he believe in it did he understand what it entailed in a spiritual level because he was quite a pious man did you know what was it like to be in the mind of that man that was doing those rituals um and I just think it's an interesting kind of thought experiment really Mm, absolutely a little while ago you you mentioned the the Reekin and I've I've known about the Reekin for a little while but I've, I've never I think I might have seen it from a train at a distance, but um, yeah. I've never been up close. So <laughs> tell us more about this mysterious hill. Is it a hill or a mountain? It's a hill. It's, it's Shropshire's Little Mountain. Um, it's not quite a mountain, but when you were walking it, you'd think it was a mountain. Um, I did it for my birthday, actually, and I'd forgotten how steep it was. So hats off to anyone that does it on a regular basis. Um, but it's, well, it was a hill fort at one point. Um before Roxeter, which is the Roman kind of city in Shropshire, uh, it's all ruins now and it's an uh, English Heritage Museum. But before the people lived in Roxeter, they lived up on the Reekin because it, it's perfect, really. You can see over, I think you can see as far as Manchester on a clear day. Um, and there are still kind of, there's heaven and hell gates. So you can still see kind of where the hill fort would be. And I think because of that and because of, the fact that it's it's had that history from well two three thousand years ago it feels very alive you walk up it and apart from being very out of breath your your hands feel tingly you can feel the past when you go there um and it's it's kind of it's been important I mean apart from people going and poaching up there like in (laughs) it has had an importance throughout the whole of kind of its human history one of my favorite things that used to happen up there is is an event called the Reekin Wakes and on certain days of the year people in Shropshire and in the surrounding area would throw a bloody big party up the Reekin why the Reekin I don't know um and it'd have like kind of stalls and music and beer lots of beer and celebrations there'd be little plays put on up there and and the whole area of the whole community would go and celebrate uh, and it culminated in a giant punch up um <laughs> intentionally and, or <laughs> yeah intentionally so the the end of the reeking wakes finished up in in a fight between the farmers and the miners so and it was to be who would be ceremonially the king of the reeking for that year so the 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 miners would fight the farmers usually the farmers would win apparently um 
but if the fight was was a bit unbalanced or going either way, the they'd send younger boys to run down the Reekin to the local villages and collect men to then run up the Reekin. And I feel so sorry for these poor boys. Like they they must have had calves of steel. Um, but I just love the idea of like a an organised punch up. And yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and they used to just do this, and whoever won would be the king of the Reekin for that year. And there was like little morality plays being put on and things. But this was in like the early, late 1700s, early 1800s. People were doing this kind of thing. But it became that kind of frowned upon and sinful that some years they'd send like the local kind of, whether it was before the police, but the equivalent of the local police to go and break up these fights, Um, which I just think is amazing. So it's gone from being like a hill fort to somewhere where you can go and punch a miner. Um, (laughs) And then, obviously, there's the folk tale, uh, which is associated with the Reekin, which is really cool, and it's about giants. <laughs> oh, um, I'd love to hear it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, for some reason, the mayor of Shrewsbury thought it was a really good idea to send young girls to a Welsh giant. I'm probably going to pronounce his name terribly, but it's Gwendal Reekin at Schenkin at Mindmauer. Now he said basically I'm gonna smash I'm gonna smash your town, I'll smash up Shrewsbury unless you send me girls. So the, the mayor of Shrewsbury in his infinite wisdom was like, Yeah, okay, we've got girls to spare. So he used to spend send them to him and never question where these girls went or what happened. Um it wasn't until they sent a, a young girl who was quite smart one day, we'll call her, say Emily. Uh, so they sent Emily and she managed to escape the the, the giant saw that there was loads of piles of bones everywhere and thought mm, maybe these girls are being eaten so she goes back to shrewsbury tells the mayor you've sent me to me death the, the, the giant's eating me was going to eat me and they stop sending the girls um it takes gwendal a little while to realize this because he's a bit he's a bit slow bit kind of <laughs> slow on the uptake but when he realizes it he goes into an almighty rage and it said he's so angry that the, the kind of the floor shaking and he's causing like earthquakes all over the wales and england and he realizes that what he needs to do is he just needs to rid the world of shrewsbury and if he can <laughs> rid the world of shrewsbury and if if he can get rid of shropshire too that'd be great because he ate shropshire as well but if he could get rid of shrewsbury that'd be great because he really does not like the mayor so he thinks about <laughs> it <laughs> i know i love it um he thinks about it and he thinks really hard and he thinks what can i do so you know i'm a i'm a giant i'm i'm really strong and really tall so and then he sees his shovel and he thinks a good thing he could do would be to dam up the reekin near shrewsbury and cause not dam up the reekin sorry dam up the the river seven near shrewsbury and cause the whole area to flood which had drowned everybody it would drown that horrible mare and he'd never he could go back to wales in peace so he gets his shovel and he pig, puts it in the ground and picks up the biggest amount of earth he can physically carry. And he stomps his way through the Welsh mountains over to Shropshire. The problem is with uh, Gwendal is that he doesn't know the way. He hasn't got a clue. So the, he's walking, the sun's beating down on him, the shovel's heavy. He he just has had enough already before he's even really started. Um and he's walking down this path and he's walking down it and he gets to a place called Wellington, which isn't, I think it's about seven miles from Shrewsbury. So he gets there and he's on the road and he bumps into a cobbler, an old old man that's a, a cobbler. He's got a big bag of shoes on his back. Now the cobbler walks from Wellington to Shrewsbury every couple of days and he, he picks up the shoes from Shrewsbury because they're posh and they're, they're rich clients and then walks back fixes them and then takes them back to Shrewsbury and that's what he's done all his life he's done that since he was a boy and the cobbler looks and sees this giant blocking out the sun with a big shovel and thinks oh dear um <laughs> something's afoot here um and something is afoot the, the, the literally the giant stomps over and you shouting at the old man what are you doing where am I tell me I demand I need to know and the old man's clever as well as you know being a a shoemaker and he looks at him and he goes right well where is it you, you're going where is it you want to go and the giant goes shrewsbury i need to go i need to get there now now before the the giant could even tell the cobbler why he's going 
he notices the big shovel and thinks that there's some at a foot and he thinks there's, there's a bit of a problem. So he, he, he goes, well, what, why is it that you, you want to go there? What, what, what are you doing in Shrewsbury? Are you going, going to visit, what, the castle or something? And he says, no, I'm, I'm going to destroy it. I want to flood Shrewsbury because Gwendol's a bit, he's, he's a bit kind of, doesn't know that stranger danger, I think. Um, so he tells him his plan <laughs> and the cobbler thinks on his feet and he goes, right. He says, well, see this big bag of shoes on my back? And the giant goes, yes. He goes, well, I had these shoes and they were all new when I started walking to Shrewsbury. I'm going that way. Um, and when I started my journey, I had a big bag of new shoes and look, they're all worn to the sole. They're all, they've got holes in. I look at me, I've got a big white beard. I'm, I'm an old man. But when I started walking to Shrewsbury, I was young. And I can tell you now, lad, that I'm no nearer to Shrewsbury than I was when I began. So you, you have a big journey ahead now. Gwendol f- absolutely flies off the handle. He, he goes into a rage. He stomps his feet. He cries like a baby. And he's so upset that he can't get to Shrewsbury in the time. And he has to carry this big, heavy shovel. So in a rage, he flo- throws the shovel down. And the, the, the land, the earth that was on the shovel, ends up forming the reeking. And Gwendol stomps back off to Wales. And he's never seen again. And the cobbler chuckles to himself and realizes that he's done a good job um and and yeah the land that was on that shovel turns out to be the reekin and that's that's how the reekin was formed nothing to do with geology <laughs> <laughs> now like a giant who needs to learn some sort of anger management i think <laughs> yeah and to stop eating women <laughs> exactly that was a wonderful story i mean oh, thank you that feels like that's at a that's at sort of the other end of of folklore very much, there's very much a story there. I, I, it feels less like a, a lesson. Yes, yeah, I feel um, very much like you can imagine it. That literally at the reeking wakes, being told and everybody laughing yeah, yeah. and jeering, or even kind of it being acted out as like a play or something. Um, I mean, it, it. If you're a giant, it teaches you not to trust old men. But other than that, it is kind of an entertainment story. Yeah. That's a really good point you make, actually. Sometimes when I read folklore, I think this would be like a small little play for people to watch. It would. I wonder if that's part of how these stories have been preserved. I, I reckon so. You can definitely see something like that being performed and, and being very almost pantomime-esque with the giant being really, and, and particularly um, the giant's Welsh and with it being an area that historically has had a lot of conflict with the Welsh and you can even imagine them playing up to that kind of Welsh stereotype and being quite insulting about the giant purely and simply because he's Welsh, which is obviously wrong. But you can you can imagine it being a very a pantomime, a very a performance. Yeah, definitely. So, um, are there any other um, stories associated with the Reekin? Um, there there is another one where there's two giants and they're fighting and I don't know that story as well um, but it involves these two giants throwing lobs of earth at each other and it ends up with a a reeking (laughs) Um, there are stories of like a few um, kind of hauntings and stuff like there's said to be people being seen still wandering up there because it's it's, there were certain days of the year where the whole of like the the not that kind of Telford Shropshire area would just walk up the Reekin I know when I was a kid you'd walk up on certain days of the year and you'd see your teachers and stuff um and there's another fella who in I can't remember his name but in the Norman period it was um said that there was a hermit that lived up there and he lived up there and basically just did hermit stuff and avoided like I just just hermit things and avoided civilization and obviously used it as a place of religious reflection and things but did that whole wild man hermit stuff so that's always quite good um but other than that I can't think of any off the top of my head but there probably are more with with, with somewhere that's a, a big hill in a in a landscape that's not quite as as hilly I, I'm just wondering if there's folklore that's sort of indicative of perhaps more modern paranormal phenomena such as you know cryptids or any ufos seen around there for example 
the are Shropshire does seem have it's not an area I know masses about, but there have been UFOs seen over kind of the Reekin area and and flying saucers in kind of Telford. Um, I know my mum said she saw one when she was a kid um, on the school field and it would have been the top of Ironbridge in like the Maidley area. She was on a school field playing and she saw a flying saucer zoom over the school field and she tried to tell her mum and her dad and even though her dad was the man that met the devil, he didn't believe her, uh, which is a bit <laughs> hypocritical. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, well, so, yeah. So the devil was fine, but um, I draw the line at spaceships. So. <laughs> yeah. So when... Are there other places that have a, a a ghost story that you like, or a, or, a, or a tale of unusual beings? Um, there's a lot of I've come across a lot of ghost stories that are really quite cool. Um, there's one that's quite short, and it's literally that there was a farmer in a place called Hodnet, which is not far from Shrewsbury. But in Shropshire, everything's not far from Shrewsbury. It's what we use as <laughs> kind of a, a a term of kind of it's either or it's the other side of the reeking or it's not far from shrewsbury so in hodnet there was a farmer and in life he was a really liked man he was a good farmer he looked after his animals and and kind of just did farmer things until he passed but then in death he has decided to wander the little country lanes and stuff but rather than it being him in his form for some reason and no one really knows he's a horseman so he's got the head of a horse and the body of a human being and there's been lots of sightings I think even in my lifetime there's been sightings of this fella wandering around Hodnet the country lanes half man half horse so I've always found that one quite cool because there's not any real reason for him to have become a horse but it must have got to the afterlife and they've gone oh you know what do you want to be and he was like, you know what, I want a horse's head. Um, so I like that one. Uh, similarly, there's a place called East Hope, a church. Um, and it's again, it's just a little one that's kind of quite cool. And it's haunted by two monks. Now, these two monks were said to have hated each other in life. Absolutely hated each other. I don't know why. Maybe one had stole the other one's religious book or something. They, they just really did not like each other. And they actually... It all come to head one day when one insulted the other and they had a scrap. So it's already cool because it's got fighting monks. Um, <laughs> she so sent them up scrapping. to the top of the Reekin. <laughs> yeah, should do. Yeah. Um, so they were scrapping and they were they're fighting, but they got too close to the stairs and they both fell down the stairs, hit their little heads and passed away, unfortunately. But they're said to haunt the church still in East Hope. And you said to hear like the, the crashes and bangs of fights and even disembodied voices shouting and then the tumble down the stairs and there has been monks like robes seen but nothing like not a full visitation um but I just really love the idea of monks fighting <laughs> um I just think it's it's brilliant um other than that there is a ghost story in Shrewsbury and it's about Shrewsbury Castle and it's it's a ghost of a serial killer which I think's really quite cool um a medieval serial killer so it's set in shrewsbury castle at the time when there was a lot of wars with the welsh so they would bring a lot of people from other parts of the country to the castle to be on duty and to basically to do your military service there and there is a fella who is known as jack that they don't really know where he was from but he was said to have been stationed at the castle and he was very well liked um by his other men and who he was working with so he got the role of custodian of the castle so he was basically like the groundskeeper when everyone was away but he used that to seduce young ladies young Shropshire ladies and murder them um so what he would do is he would he'd seduce them he'd be oh you know I'm gonna run away with you marry me and these young girls would fall for it and fall for his charm and it's also that kind of exotic thing you know you're a oh that's a soldier from somewhere other than Shropshire wow um and unfortunately he'd bring them back to the castle and because he was often the custodian when no one was there he would murder them and no one would know it was happening so he managed to murder seven girls um in according to the ghost story and people started to notice that their daughters were disappearing and they they, they knew that they'd 
be near the castle but there was no definitive kind of idea of why because one of the things Jack did was he would tell the girls not to tell anyone because he'd say oh you know well I'm not from around here your mum and dad won't approve they won't let me marry you I really want to marry you and they'd fall for it um however the last girl was you know still drawn in by his charms and she was still um seduced by him but she was clever enough to tell her sister and she told her sister about this fabulous soldier that she was going to marry and that she loved and that she was going to the castle one day to be with him and it, it raised alarm bells with her sister but you know she thought well you know she's happy I can't really stop her so the girl went to the castle and didn't come home so her sister was worried and she thought the only thing she could do was to go to the castle and see what was happening she goes up to Shrewsbury Castle and she walks through the gates to see Jack murdering her sister dragging her by the hair through the land and and she's that shocked and and appalled by what she sees she just runs because a fight or flight kicks in and she knows at that point her sister's died her sister's been killed after that she leaves it a couple of days and works out what she can do and she realizes the only way she can do anything is to go back to the castle because she might be able to find something or confront Jack or or do something to try and stop him from going on a rampage so she goes but Jack happens to be on leave so he's not there so she speaks to people and tells them that she saw her sister coming in and they say that he can she can go and um search Jack's room so she goes up into Jack's room and she finds a little wooden casket little wooden box opens it and she finds eight rows of fingers and toes oh dear which is amazing it's pretty gross and she knows that's enough proof to say that you know her sister's been killed plus eight other girls so Jack is tried and he's said to have been hung drawn and quartered for his crimes um it's a bit sketchy the history behind it there are some evidence that there was a chap he was called Jack Blundell um there around about the time and there was some talk of girls disappearing but like with every kind of ghost tale or folklore there's more in the folk tale than there is in the actual um you know history behind it but bloody jack is that's what he's been known his epithet that he's been known as is said to still haunt the castle and he said and he's meant to be quite an aggressive um entity meant to feel quite uncomfortable there and at certain points of the day particularly around dusk again you can hear him and you can hear the girls disembodied screams and some people have even reported seeing him still drag the girl across the courtyard um there has been several sightings of either jack walking around the courtyard or him with the girl um and i just think there's so much to unpack in that story it's like it's again a really cool story but it it's got to be again based in some sort of tragedy or some sort of event that happened that history might not necessarily have fully remembered yeah definitely i mean these kinds of things i i think there there will always be a a bit of truth there and then it's uh it's it's how that that truth's been preserved over time i mean the, the, the imagination and uh, when i say imagination I'm, i don't mean as in didn't happen but the imagination is a great way of visualizing these kinds of events oh definitely and i think um as well even if you take it down to say the murders didn't happen if you're a parent in a town where you know there's going to be lots of young men and young soldiers from all over the area you're going to tell your daughter something to keep them away from the attractive new soldiers it might even have just been that it might have been like a a jenny green teeth for the teenage years um but i do i do find that one quite it's when the opening of the box and seeing the fingers and toes it's like oh no stop it (laughs) yeah definitely yeah very gruesome um Going back to that guy who came back as a horseman. Um, yeah. <laughs> I know that in Wales, there's a tradition of, I think he's called, is it Mary Lloyd? It's a sort of a skeletal ghost where they'll, yes. they'll take it into houses at, during wassailing or something like that, I think. Is, yeah. That, yeah. is, is that a tradition um, that, that, is, um, that has made its way to Shropshire as well? Not to my knowledge. It might happen on the border. Um, I think kind of like, right on the border of Oswestry, that kind of area. Um, but 
it, it's a really cool tradition and I do I love the idea of the bo- the bone horse knocking on your door and you have to have a rap battle with it and if the rap battle goes wrong they come and drink your house dry I just think it's a really clever brilliant folk tradition and I do love um seeing how it's kind of almost been resuscitated resuscitated in the the last few years and you see that actually people that are still doing it now in Wales and there's a few artists that are bringing Mary to life um one called Schools and Sheets on Twitter she does some amazing artwork um absolutely beautiful Marys that are all all sorts every kind of them and it, it's really nice to see again how a, quite an old folk tradition can be brought to life and had new life breathed into them mm, absolutely and I I think you're probably right. I think that guy, he died. And I think it's nice that maybe he, they, when he got to whatever sort of afterlife he conceived, they just asked him, well, well, if you go back to Earth, what would you like to be? He's like, I think I'd like to be like a horse guy. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, let's spook people. I want to be a horse. Or, you know, because there's not even like certain things and certain stories you can see things as a punishment but i can't conceive any way that having a horse's head would be any real punishment um and everything points to him being kind of a cool dude um so yeah i don't know but i i love that one um i just think it's 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 just bizarre and it's just it's just lovely and it's what makes britain kind of great is these bizarre little traditions and folk stories Mm, absolutely what about um black dogs there are some they're not as common as other areas um but there are some reports of black dogs particularly around cemeteries in kind of the middle shropshire that kind of area um there are some sort of like weird points to them and stuff so um where near where i grew up there was a place called dog in the lane and it was literally just a country lane and there's there's ideas that there would have been a black dog site in there to call it dog in the lane either that or there is literally just at one point the name the lane didn't have a name and then they were like oh there's a dog there let's name it after that um, <laughs> but they're not as common as other areas uh, but they are they do still happen right yeah it's interesting you say that because i i'm often wondering what came first the, the name of the place or the thing that happened near there because yeah, um yeah. in Lincolnshire there's a really small village called Dog Dyke and there have been sort of man wolf sightings near there and I'm like, well Oh that's so cool. Did is it called Dog Dyke because people saw man wolves or man wolves yeah. there because it's called Dog Dyke and they think, well, this sounds like a kind of place for me. Um <laughs> Yeah. Finally, somewhere I'll be recognised, that kind of thing. Yeah, no, th- things like that are really interesting and really cool. Um, it's just trying to, like, work out what, like, like it's a different example, but Iron Bridge is called Iron Bridge because there's an Iron Bridge there. And before there was an Iron Bridge, it wasn't called Iron Bridge, but the defining feature of the area, apart from the cute little shops, is that there's an Iron Bridge there. And because the community built the Iron Bridge at the time and it was, you know, the whole of the that kind of area was really quite heavy industry for a rural area. They were very proud of this great Iron Bridge, which is the first one in the world. So, of course, they're going to call the area Iron Bridge. And then, like, there's Colbrook Dale because there's coal there and there was a little brook running through it. It's named after that. Jack Field, there was a field there. And, and it's kind of the idea of, people naming things because of what they see and sometimes it can be so literal so I really do like the idea of them naming it after the the wolf men <laughs> like, oh well, that's a bit strange well, well, well this will put the area on the map <laughs> yeah yeah definitely so um are there other monsters in Shropshire that, that you've you've read about and researched um, so there's there are a few. Um, we're not as well equipped. We have some more giants. Um, there's there's a, a a hill that has a Welsh name. It's I I can't pronounce it to save my life, but that's said to be the body of a sleeping giant. Um, we have a lot of kind of wild men that aren't particularly wild, as in like the the hairy and and like Bigfoot. But we have these people that are kind of they existed, but their lives are so bizarre that they become folklore. And they become um, almost like animals. So we had um, this Humphrey Kiniston, who 
I don't know the ins and outs, but he was like a landowner at the time. And he just got bored of doing it one day. He got bored of being a landowner, bored of being rich. And he was like, right, you know what? I'm going to go out and kill someone. So he got into an argument and killed someone. And um, the, the, the king said at the time, right, okay, you can either pay me some money, or go to prison, or you can die because you... You've you've killed someone, and he goes. You know what? Actually, I'm going to become an outlaw. Screw all this. I'm I'm <laughs> going to go and live in a cave. So he goes and lives in a cave. Uh, does a bit of highwayman in about 300 years before highwaymen were cool. Um, and he just genuinely is a bit of a nuisance to the law enforcement. But a lot of the ways he's described is almost animalistic in the way his behaviour is. He, he has no inhibitions, that kind of thing. Um. He has this big horse, big black stallion that's said to be given to him by the devil himself because Kiniston was so bad and so naughty that the devil liked him. Um, And then one day he just gets bored of doing that and he goes, you know what, I've done this now. I'm going to go and be friends with the king again. And then he goes and be friends with the king. Um, So we have a lot more figures like that. There's Mad Jack Mitten. Um, I talk about Mad Jack a lot because Mad Jack is just he would fit very well in our government at the moment. Um, he's like a Regency rake. And again, he's a real man. But the depictions of him are almost animalistic. He's said to be completely in control of his actions. And, you know, it's clear that he had some sort of mental health uh, issues, which is sad. But it's almost that he reveled in it and he really enjoyed being a bit bizarre. Um, he used to ride bears into big banquets he'd order organize a big banquet at his uh big country manor and then he'd ride a bear in and the bear would savage someone and he'd just kind of be like right okay well you know it's my bear so it's fine um, he used to get his horse drunk because his horse was his best friend he had some children but he never really liked his children that much so he purposely didn't speak to them but if he had a favorite one he'd pelt his favorite child with oranges um which i've never <laughs> understood but i just i love the idea of old dad's here bam 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 with the oranges and he was like an infamous drinker like really 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 like bad for drinking um and that's kind of where more of the animalistic descriptions come in and where he's he's akin to almost like a wolfman like you said or something like that because he's meant to drink people out of house and home and like he he went to university and he was given 4,000 bottles of port to last him for the entirety of his university years. And he drunk them all in a term. Wow. Um, I mean... So, it, you know, he had nothing better to do than just be rich and, and, and drink. Um, another one of my favorite stories is that he decided one day that he wanted to be a politician. So he tried to clean up his act a little bit. And he was like, you know what? I'm going to behave. I'm going to be good. Uh, I'm going to stop drinking and fighting and, and just being like a, a naughty boy. And he thought a better way of doing it was to bribe the whole of the area. So he bribed them all with £10 notes, which was an awful lot at the time. Become a politician, obviously, because if you're being bribed with 10 quid, you're going to vote for the guy that in the 1700s give you enough money to live on for probably a year. So he got he gets to Parliament, lasts 30 minutes, and then he, he leaves because he's bored of it. <laughs> and, and he just, the stories go on, but I think we have a lot of figures in Shropshire because there are a few others that aren't creatures but their behavior was so atypical to the time that they are described almost in animalistic ways um and described as being almost i mean tom um jack mitten was always described as being possessed by the devil and, and devilistic and things like that and they almost they were real but they they gain a folklore and a folk following almost in themselves and you can see how in a few years time Jack Mitten won't be, a, you know, in the next maybe 100 years, Jack Mitten won't be a real figure. He'll be, oh, you know, be careful or Jack Mitten will come and throw oranges at you, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a really interesting way of looking at it, how these sort of larger-than-life characters, they they do survive after they've died. They, they do have this legendary nature to them, and I guess that can change over time and evolve. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um he 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 is just he's just terrible jack he's just terrible he's he, it's one of those where he's great to talk about but i don't think i'd want to be in a room with him um there is one animal story um a, which is centered around mitchell's fold we seem to have quite a few 
cow like mythical cows um there's the dun cow which is a different story um centered around shrewsbury but there's a stone circle in shropshire called mitchell's fold and it's said to have been put there around about the time of a great famine in shropshire so everybody was dying everybody was really starving and they were really struggling but there was one farmer who kept his spirits up and he he believed that there'd be better times and he used to walk up the hill every day and kind of pray to the god to god that something good would happen and it wasn't god that was listening but it was the fairy realm and one day the farmer was walking back down the hill and a giant cow was there now first of all he's probably eyeing it up and thinking that's 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 enough meat to feed me for <laughs> a short while but he realizes because the cow's shiny and beautiful and really quite big that it not only is it a dairy cow but it's got to be a gift from the fairies so he takes it back down to the village and they all agree to let the cow roam freely on the hill and graze in the day but then when it come, in the early morning the cow will come back down and they'll milk it so they go from being quite emaciated and poorly to being having cheese and having milk and dairy and just genuinely getting in better health however there's a witch in the area called Mitchell who really really does not like seeing the area thrive she wants them all dead she, she'd be quieter for her if there was nobody about so she thinks the only thing she can really do is steal the cow so that's what she does she waits for the cow to be on its own and steals it up to the center of the hills and starts milking it because she she believes that this cow can't be that magical it's got to have be um able to milk it dry and when she milks it dry she can either send it back down to torment them or she can kill it so she milks it into a sieve and she's milking and she's milking and she's laughing to herself but the cow clicks the cow's magical so she clicks that this witch isn't up to no good and with a swift kick she kicks the witch up into the air and the witch turns into a stone and she's turned to stone and she's at the center of the uh, the the stone circle and then these other stones rise up from the earth and surround Mitchell so if ever she stops being turned into stone she'll be trapped there still by these stone guardians and then the cow goes back down to the village and gives them milk one more time and then disappears never to be seen again but it allows the people of the village to survive winter and then after that the harvests never fail and they never have any real issues again um and i think obviously that shows the importance of kind of dairy and importance of livestock in an area like Shropshire that's quite rural but I just I love the idea of of a cow kind of having her own back on the witch. <laughs> Absolutely no that's um whenever I've gone to stone circles and there's that sort of legend about them being you know warriors or people who've been turned to stone for some reason I don't know there's part of me thinks well, maybe they were turned into stone. These areas do have that they have something about them that, that lends themselves to that sort of narrative. Oh, definitely. Like the, the very kind of, you can feel the age of places. It's like on the Reekin, you walk the Reekin and apart from being very out of breath, you can feel the age of it. You can feel your hands tingling and you can tell that there's a lot of history happened there. And I think even though we don't know what stone circles are or why they were really used, they, you can feel that they were important and you can feel that to the society that made them, they meant an awful lot. Mm, definitely. It's nice to have a story where the fairies are sort of beneficent. They were, they're kind. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, usually they're horrible, aren't they? Um, yeah, I like, I like the idea of them looking at these poor, emaciated Shropshire folk and going, you know what, send them a cow. We won't, we won't do everything for them. We won't make the crops work, but we'll send them a cow. It's like sending a gift package or a with sympathy card <laughs> to them. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Well, Amy, this has been a really fun conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Oh, and thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. If people want to find out more about you and your, your blogs and your writing, how best do they do that? Um, so you can find me on Twitter. I am Goblin Egg. Uh, so the word goblin and egg. Um, with But the O is actually like a, a zero. I suppose if you put nearly knowledgeable in, which is the name of my blog, you'd find me on Twitter. Um, and on Twitter, you can find all of my links. Um, but my blog is actually 
nearly knowledgeable history at blogspot.com and you should be able to find me there. Brilliant. Well, I'll make sure to put all that information in the show notes. Oh, thank you. Thank you. No problem at all. Thanks, Amy. It's evident early on from our conversation just how passionate Amy is about folklore and local history. And the power of stories to preserve those things is really quite remarkable. Amy's blog is excellent and well worth checking out if you enjoyed this episode. It was interesting to discuss with her the way myths and legends were originally most likely told and retold. And those stories involving giants and beings whose size doesn't really make sense seem far more reasonable if you imagine them as a play or a performance piece. I'm so used to reading stories alone in a book that I often forget that for the most part they're more often told in a group setting, or that's how they originally started out. That's all for now. Please consider rating this episode wherever you listen and sharing it on social media as it really helps the podcast to grow and find new listeners. You can follow Some Other Sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and subscribe on all good podcast platforms. You can now also donate to the podcast via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. And thank you to everyone who has donated so far. If you'd like to email me here at Sphere HQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, and thank you very much for listening.